Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hi, Stuart. Sean, great to be in conversation with you again this Friday. Hey, great to be here. Hey, Stuart. Hey, Rudyard. Well, guys, here's what we're going to do. Uh, as we have for the last couple of weeks, we're going to kick off our roundtable discussion today with a kind of recap and a bit of a deep dive into the Conservative Party race. What's going on? How are these candidates positioning themselves? What, if anything, have we learned about the dynamics of this contest over the last seven days. And then after our short intermission break, let's come back and talk about the budget, the new federal budget due out this Thursday, a whole bunch of competing priorities. We've had some interesting analysis and insight into uh, some of those challenges in the hub this week. So let's uh, dig into those on the second half of the show. But Stuart, I want to come to you first. You wrote our, our roundup of uh, the CPC leadership race this Friday in the hub. I thought you had a great line that it was looking like a, a kind of pretty boring week, kind of paint drying on the campaign trail. And then, hey, uh, something happened. What was it? And why do you think it's uh, worthy of some attention and focus? Yeah. And just to like take a look behind the scenes, there's no worse feeling in the world than if you're a journalist and you're getting a really boring week and you've promised to write a weekly roundup of about 700 words. And it's uh, it's not a good feeling. So when Pierre Polyev walked into Tahini's restaurant in London, Ontario, and paid for his shawarma sandwich with uh, Bitcoin, that was great. I thought that would be a great thing to write about. And then the reaction from, you know, most of our political classes, they're all on Twitter these days. And that's where all this discussion happens. I couldn't believe the reaction, like positive and negative. Um, I just think that Pierre Polyev has a real knack. I think people, uh, especially people on the left, are pretty already fired up and ready to oppose whatever he does. And he also just has a knack for finding these issues. Um, I think with the Bitcoin thing, um, there's a real generational divide there. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm just pushing 40 now. So I'm a little too old to be able to figure out Bitcoin. Like I have tried it and it's like too fiddly for me. So I think if I were five years younger, I would be super pro Bitcoin. Everyone older than me, I think is uh, very skeptical of Bitcoin. And that was kind of the dynamic of the race, uh, the dynamic of the conversation. And I think also the dynamic of the race. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it was a good little microcosm for what we're uh, going to be looking forward to here. Yeah. So Sean, let me come to you because you've been kind of thinking and writing on uh this kind of inter interesting intergenerational cleavage and kind of fault line running between this campaign and its front runners, Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest. So unpack a little of that for us. And then, hey, at 
Sean just celebrated his 40th birthday. So uh, happy birthday, Sean. You're not quite a, a Bitcoin bro, but hey, at 51, you got a good decade or, or so on me to be a little bit closer to the pulse of an interesting, like conservative confluence here of crypto and, you know, kind of libertarianism, maybe even free market enthusiasm. Uh, lay this thesis out for us, Sean. Well, first of all, thanks for the, the birthday wishes, guys. Uh, we'll have to <laughs> celebrate next time we're all together. Um, maybe I'll just pick up your first question uh, to start, Rudyard, and that is this, this question of the generational dynamics that are underpinning um, this race. I spent a couple of days this week with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, uh, who I think has as good finger on the pulse of, of the public mood as, as anyone in the country. And what he tells me, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, is that the increasingly most kind of salient thing he's picking up in his polling is a growing sense that middle-class progress has stalled. Um, that manifests itself in different ways, including concerns about housing affordability, student debt, job precarity, financial instability, um, but this really it really does reflect a kind of generational divide between um, those who are established and are feeling pretty good about Canadian uh, economy and society and those who are coming up um, in a post-pandemic world that looks uh, increasingly uh, precarious and, and, and as such, a kind of challenge to the way people have thought about um, what a, a middle class life um, ought to look like. It, it seems to me Pierre Polyev has is, is figured out a way um, to uh, address and, 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 and reflect um, those uh, growing concerns within the Canadian population. And I think the big question for the other candidates, including Jean Charest, is can they find their voice um, in talking about this idea of stalled middle class progress? Fascinating stuff. Um, so Stuart, you know, how does this play out in the dynamics of the campaign? You know, um, we've, we've had, and we'll talk about this when we come back from the break a bit with the budget, these kind of political parties that are trying to fashion larger, you know, messages about their intent and purpose. So if we, if we go from, you know, conservative versus liberal versus NDP into this race, you clearly have with Pierre Polyev, a well-defined kind of gatekeepers, disruptive, bit, pro-Bitcoin kind of perspective um, that's interesting, and it's got some sharp edges, and it's clearly cutting through a lot of the noise out there. With the Charest campaign, what is the, what's the counter, the counterweight, the, you know, the ideological impetus and thrust of the campaign, or do you sense that they're still looking for that? Yeah, I think they're still looking for that. And I think it is, it's tough for that campaign because, you know, they're, they're kind of looking to define their own membership of, you know, who they want to sign up. And that tends to be people who are, you know, they're maybe disaffected with the Conservative Party, or, you know, there's this idea that I think Sean is correctly identified as maybe isn't as big a segment of voters as people might think, but people who have voted liberal in the past and may be drawn to the conservatives. Um, I, there was a poll this week that the Globe and Mail commissioned, um, and I would encourage people to be very skeptical of these type of polls because while they're interesting, they don't tell us a lot about the race that we're watching, but in general, Canadians think Charest has the best chance to win. 
Um, that's 30% for Sheree and 22% for Polyev. Um, but I don't know if that matters. I don't know if it matters if liberals and NDPers think that Sheree can win an election. Um, it may be that this um, deal between the liberal and the NDP is just so unappealing to some segment of voters, maybe those middle ground people who are feeling a little queasy at the long-term finances of Canada, um, that they start to look at Chiray and they say, you know, like he's not as polarizing as Polyev and he might be a guy that can sort this out. Um, that is a big bet to make. Um, so I, I think Sean's instinct that he probably has to find something. I mean, the beauty of Polyev's um, rhetoric is that it applies to everything. You can find a gatekeeper everywhere. Um, if you are looking at Bitcoin, that's the gatekeeper's matches because there's no banks stopping you from doing what you want to do. Um, on housing, it's the people who won't let you build um, down the road. And if you just put a little bit of mental energy into it, you can probably find a gatekeeper wherever you want to find one. Uh, and that usually makes for a good political message. I want to yeah, just, just, just if I could, just to build course. on that for one second, then I'll come to you, Sean. Is I think there's an interesting additional um, argument that the, the, the Poly campaign could layer on top of this soon, which is in addition to, as you say, kind of anger and frustration with gatekeepers, we're entering into clearly uh, an inflationary moment here where supply and demand are mismatched. We've got too much demand and not enough uh, supply. So one way you can make an argument here to start to solve for that and to re reduce inflation or the risk of, of entrenched inflation is to increase supply. So there's all kinds of, I think, interesting arguments that you could build on top of the gatekeepers to go beyond the rhetoric and frankly, the, the anger, the, the anger part of the argument into something more constructive, which is, look, we, we are moving into possibly a period here of some real scarcity, scarcity of goods and services, uh, scarcity of energy, we have to now think about constructive, interesting, smart deregulation that allows for us to increase supply so that demand is better matched, so that inflation becomes less of this pernicious, constant erosion of our, of our purchasing power. Am I wrong, Sean? No, I think that's precisely right. Um, uh, you know, it seems to me on virtually any major public policy and even economic or societal question, our ability to produce and, and build more is, is really at the heart of it. You know, think of climate change, for instance. Um, the, the way out of climate change uh, isn't to, uh, you know, burden our economy. It's to build. It's to build new technologies. It's to build nuclear power plants. It's to do all of these things that require, as you say, uh, Rudyard, uh, a deregulatory agenda a deregulation agenda um, uh, that enables us to to produce the supply that we need, you know, just across the whole economy. But but Sean, the key thing here, I think, which the the, the campaign hasn't done yet, is to more substantively link that to a fight against inflation. Uh, I know they're partly talking about it in the context of housing, but I think there's a much broader case that you could make here, especially as related to energy and energy production and distribution in Canada. I think there's a powerful message to people to say, look, if you're feeling the pinch, there are ways to lessen that, but we have to get started now. And we need a, we need a, an agenda that's a lot bigger than Bitcoin. 
<laughs> I, I agree with that, uh, uh, of course. Um, but if I can come back uh, to something Stuart said, um, because we, we spent a lot of time on, on last episode and a bit so, so far today talking about uh, Polyev's message and this idea of the, the, the so-called gatekeeper's narrative. What's Jean Charest's narrative thus far in this election campaign? It's, it's built to win. It's a, it's a proposition about electability. It's not about ideas or values. And it seems to me the, the problem with that in the context of the conservative leadership race is conservative party members have chosen, they've opted in, they've self-selected to be members of a political party because they're motivated by ideas and, and values. And so Jean Charest needs to match gatekeepers uh, with his own ideas and, and, and values and, and how they manifest themselves in, in a policy agenda. A couple of weeks ago, I, um, I mentioned on the podcast that Shrey had said something about uh, Canada being the equivalent of a lottery ticket for those who were born here or those who come here. And uh, I think the two of you scoffed at the idea that it seemed, um, it seemed nostalgic and, and outdated. And, and as I said earlier, um, what Daryl Bricker tells me is that's how people feel, that uh, it is outdated, it is nostalgic, that it's no longer um, the, the, the odds of the, of the Canadian lottery ticket aren't as good as they used to be. And so it, it seems to me this is something that Jean Charest needs to lean into. Uh, how do we recreate the conditions um, to restart um, the stalled middle-class progress that I mentioned earlier? I, I, if Charest can find his voice on, on, on something, a narrative along those lines, um, you know, I think he's got a better chance at challenging Polyev. But if Polyev's talking about ideas and values in the form of gatekeepers and Charest's talking about electability, it just seems to me there's a, a big disconnect with conservative voters. And so that's a long way of saying Charest's going to have to match gatekeepers with a normative ideological case um, if he's going to compete in this leadership. Fascinating stuff. So Stuart, to come back to you before we go to break, you know, how does that actually play out or what does that look like? Because I think, you know, you and I were, you know, friendly in a friendly way scoffing at Sean, because it is generate, it goes back to the generational dynamic that if you are a boomer, you know what, the lottery ticket was pretty good. You had a, you had a not bad number. Uh, you kind of wrote up the, the population boom of the post-war era. You've enjoyed uh, the debt binge of the last 20 years enabled by your central banks and monetary policy. And now you're heading towards re uh, retirement with your indexed pensions, pharmacare, dental care, you name it, we're going to lard it on you. But for the millennials and under, wow, you know, very different picture, you know, home ownership retreating over the horizon for many, a sense that, uh, you know, wages, growth, uh, productivity has kind of stalled. You know, we've done some work elsewhere, but reported in the hub that, you know, per capita GDP in our supposed economic powerhouse of Ontario is now the equivalent of West Virginia, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we share the same per capita GDP as West Virginia. So, Stuart, is it is it is this a sellable message? Is it can you package it, or is there just too much cynicism out there? And is Sheree the wrong messenger as one of those boomers that's really been on the right side of the the divide, the fault line uh, that's run through a lot of our our economics of the last quarter century or more? Yeah, I think that's the question, and the it, this is really interesting to me because when I interviewed Jason Kenney, as he was 
you know, becoming premier in Alberta. It was right around the time of the election. Um, things were a lot more optimistic back then than they are now. His plan at the time was to come to Alberta with a sort of social mobility, reform conservatism type of agenda. But he got there and he thought, you know, this isn't the right message here. And they went with more of a supply side, like cutting corporate taxes, cutting taxes, um, building growth and building jobs. And that was, you know, that was kind of an audible that he called um, just from sort of gauging the mood of the electorate. Um, it seems to have paid off for Kenny at the time. That is the skill that I lack severely um, and most journalists lack severely. That's a very rare political skill to be able to put your finger in the wind and just figure it out, figure out what the message is. I, I wonder what the political experts would say about the social mobility um, message, because I think that is what's on a lot of people's minds right now is, will my life turn out better than my parents' life? Or will it be worse? Will my kid's life turn out okay? Um, this is the kind of thing that just fills you with worry as a parent. Um, you just hope that your kids will have those chances. And um, the, the thing that Polyev has done, which I think is probably going to work for him, is that he is allowing the anger and the disappointment and the cynicism um, to, to sort of uh, be reflected in his campaign. Um, but that's not all it is. He's going to have to provide a solution on top of that. So you can't come in and say, you know, don't worry, all your concerns are um, not that big of a deal. We'll fix it. That's a real loser. Um, but if you can somehow reflect that um, cynicism and then turn it into something better, that's kind of the political judo that has to happen. Uh, and it's a really tough thing to do. Great. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to dig into next Thursday's federal budget. What can we expect uh, in this document and how is it or even can it reconcile these kind of competing impulses that are running through the body politic now towards uh, uh, the care economy, as my colleague uh, Sean Spear would, would kind of characterize it, versus some new national security threats emerging from Europe that could demand uh, significant defense and security spending. We'll have that for you right after this short break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button, donate, we'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, we're back with the Hub Friday Roundtable. My guests are Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-chief. We're going to dig in now, guys, to the Thursday budget coming up, uh, federal budget, uh, and not an important one. It's going to probably reflect, I would think, Stuart, some of the understandings that have been reached between the NDP and the Liberals. Uh, to what extent do you think it's also going to encompass contemporary events, most notably the new security threats that are emerging out of the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question because we have, you know, it's not something we usually associate with this liberal government, but, you know, the defense minister Anita Anand has turned into a 
serious hawk um, and she's been agitating for more money and there's been some kind of vague promises about boosting um, the budget. I, I think it's a really interesting question of, first of all, should we do it? Second of all, would it make any difference at this point? Um, there was, um, we, we ran a piece by Trevor Tome just kind of showing how much this, this kind of money is. It's a huge increase. Yeah. 70% is... over, uh, what was it, over our 2021 expenditures if we wanted to, on defense, if we wanted to get to the 2% of GDP. Yeah. And so Trevor kind of, I think, quite rationally um, recommended phasing it in slowly, uh, not kidding that too hard. And part of the problem is, is that, you know, our government in general, but in particular, the Defense Department is just not good at spending money. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, sort of seen in the fact that they didn't spend their entire budget last year. Um, they were short by $1.2 billion um, just from delays in buying equipment. And then, you know, there's the classic um, procurement problems of things just ballooning extraordinarily when you try to buy something for 10 million and it costs 25 million, that kind of thing. Um, so I think there's probably like, if you're a fiscal conservative and you care about um, tax, do tax dollars and how we spend these things and sort of responsible government, um, there's a big question about, should we allow this version of our military and our defense department to spend that much money? Mm -hmm. So Sean, is, is this all just a question of what is it? What's the phrase? Uh, all hat, no cattle. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we've got a significant deficit spending. We've been doing it for years now. The parliamentary budget office is project, you know, is projecting that deficit spending forward. That was even before the NDP uh, liberal kind of agreement on rolling out these big new um, kind of, as you say, care, care economy, uh, care programs for Canadians. So, I mean, look, should we just be honest with ourselves? There's just no way to, to square this circle. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, maybe just a step back for one second. Um, you know, this government has been uh, hoping to roll out its post-pandemic vision for the country for a couple of years. And every time it seems poised to, you know, the virus um, has other plans. Um, but this time, I really do think we're going to see in this budget uh, for the first time, really, the kind of full perspective uh, reflected in this government's uh, view that that the pandemic represented this kind of, you know, paradigmatic moment, um, and that there is this kind of flowering of progressive ideas and support in the Canadian public for a, a, a more ambitious view about the the role and scope of government. And you know, you mentioned some of the big healthcare related promises reflected in the liberal NDP parliamentary agreement, dental care, pharma care, long-term care. You know, I can't help but think guys that um, this agreement gives the, this government runway until 2025. We know we, I think we talked last week about the prospect that um, prime minister Trudeau may not stand for uh, election um, in 2025. I can't help but think these healthcare commitments in effect, expanding Medicare, the single payer model, um, to the parts of the healthcare system that are presently outside of Medicare, um, uh, you know, represents for him his his political legacy that he wants to go out basically building on the foundation that Tommy Douglas and others created. And if so, let me tell you guys, um, you can't have guns and butter. Um, and so I, I suspect that what we'll see is is 
a, a kind of nod to defense spending. Um, but the, the, the real passion, the real energy on the progressive left these days is mm -hmm. expanding the welfare state. So I, I, I think we're, I, I think that we're going to get a, a pass on the defense stuff and a, a doubling down on the care stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, two thoughts on that one. We, we do have the F-35s finally coming out as a decade or something to figure this out, but we're going to take delivery on those. So maybe that to a certain degree politically, um, you know, takes a bit of pressure off or it allows a perception that, you know, defense is now getting a moment in, in the sun. What I look at guys, as we talk on the show a bit, uh, about economics is what's happening in the bond market. And we've seen really a sharp, sharp move up in, uh, Canadian bond, uh, bond yield. So suddenly, you know, these bonds that are not insignificant to our future borrowing, like the five-year bond have increased, you know, 30, 40% over the course of, uh, a couple of weeks. I mean, albeit the yields were very low, but they're going up and they could go, if you listen to Larry Summers and, uh, Mohammed Alarian, uh, and others, you know, smart commentators, you know, these yields could go significantly higher. And again, we're not a reserve currency in Canada. Uh, so arguably we've, we have to have attractive bond yields. We have to be at minimum competitive to what the United States is offering. So our, our monetary policy to a certain extent is leased out to the U S federal reserve. And, and if the federal reserves, as they're suggesting moves with some 50, basis points, half a percentage point hikes in the coming months, I think the Bank of Canada could very well follow. Why does this matter? Well, because the majority of debt that our government has borrowed over the last decade or more has been at the short end of the yield curve. So we've decided because those rates were lower than issuing bonds that are longer duration, we've changed the profile of our debt. So what's going to happen over literally the a matter of years is a lot of our debt is going to roll over. It's going to, and it's going to roll over just like your credit cards or your mortgage or your auto loans with a guess what a higher interest rate. And that's going to surge possibly uh, deficit spending here. The, my sense Stuart is, I don't know, does, does the Ottawa consensus even kind of think about these things or is this just, an inconvenience, uh, a manageable outcome that some kicking of the can down the road, you know, will solve some sunny day and some parallel universe that we don't currently inhabit. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the latter case. Um, but it, I think it is true that, you know, the sort of liberal NDP intellectual mindset is not focused on bond yields right now. Um, and I think that the idea, I think probably you nailed it on the legacy or Sean, I think you said the legacy policy is something that preys on the mind of politicians right now. We have a broken LRT in Ottawa because of the mayor's legacy project. Um, these things are a little bit unnerving for, you know, residents. Um, but I, there will be two parallel tracks here and it'll be interesting to see which one, um, we take. One is that People do like stuff. I mean, I was talking last week about how I don't mind getting checks from the government, um, even if philosophically I know it's a bad idea. This, just this week, the Ontario government signed a deal on daycare, which gave me an immediate break on my daughter's daycare bill. And yeah, but, but Stuart, just to jump in, your debt servicing costs are the, I believe, I mean, Sean can correct me here, but I think they're like the third 
definitely the fourth, but they could be the third line item expenditure in the Ontario budget with, you know, interest rate yields at 3000 year lows. So yeah, you're getting the $500 check, but you know, the infrastructure that your kids are going to enjoy in the years to come, the quality of universities and post-secondary education that will be available to them, the public subsidies that will be available for them to go to those universities. Who knows what that looks like? Because debt servicing costs are already one of our most significant top five, top three public expenditures in an ultra low yield environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you were to ask my neighbors what the debt servicing costs were in Ontario, they would not have a clue. And I think most of these things come from sort of symbolic um, sense. You get a symbolic kind of sense of what's happening in the country and in the province. And I think probably the way people sort of feel that is dysfunction, sort of general dysfunction. Um, that's why things like the trucker convoy taking up shop in downtown Ottawa was bad for all of the governments that were in charge of that area. Um, but also just the rising costs. This, so this is the other track that we're dealing with, which is that, you know, I'm delighted to see that my daycare costs were going down, even if I can put the long-term implications of that out of my brain for the next year or two. Um, but if I'm still paying a ton of money at the grocery store, if I feel like my tax burden is going up, the carbon tax went up, we're recording this on Friday, it went up today, um, and it's going to keep going up. All of these things are weighing on people. And to sort of varying extents, they're blaming governments for that. And that's where, you know, the messaging of the Conservative Party comes in where, you know, there's, there's a in, in the journalism world, they're sort of focused on, you know, is we're going to fact check Pierre Polyev on inflation or on this or on that. But um, that's worth doing. It's worth holding politicians accountable for their rhetoric. But it's he's talking to the sense that people have because people aren't thinking about bond yields and debt servicing costs. They're thinking about what their life is like. Um, so whether or not people enjoy the goodies more than they are worried about the future, that will be sort of how this plays politically. And I think if I were betting, I would be more worried than not if I were the liberal government, because I think people are starting to feel pretty pessimistic and uh, they could be just totally offside of public sentiment when they do this. Well, let me just weigh in here because, um, you know, by the time this episode comes out, uh, our latest episode of From Dialogues will be out as, as well. And, and in the episode, David and I spoke a bit about uh, the similarities between uh, the present moment in the 1970s, when we saw a, a similar liberal NDP parliamentary arrangement that uh, resulted in a pretty significant expansion in the size and activities of the state. And what's interesting, guys, is, you know, it seems to me that that laid the foundation um, for uh, the rise of a, a kind of market oriented alternative um, to the uh, profligacy and um, and state ambitions of, of that era. You know, we got Reagan and Thatcher and, and even the, the Mulroney era reforms. The problem for the left, of course, is that they haven't solved for scarcity, as Rudyard says. And what's interesting is they're not prepared to make the case for the requisite tax increases to pay for um, their spending ambitions. Even the New Democrats have, uh, by and large, abandoned um, the argument in favor of anything resembling a broad-based tax increase. So in effect, they're looking for big government on the cheap. Um, and as, as Rudyard has said in this episode and previous ones, that the credit card will only get you so far. So the, the major check on progressive ambitions in Canada remains. Um, 
that Canadians might like big government, as Stuart says, but they're not prepared to pay for it. Uh, we're, we're getting something like, you know, 75 cents on the dollar or, or whatever it is. And, and so, you know, it seems to me that this can only go so far. And the, 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 the challenge for conservatives um, is to start to make the case for what the limits are here and why um, a, a, a more uh, limited scope for, for government is not just better for the economy, but it's ultimately more responsible, particularly for future generations. Thanks, John. I think that's a, a good point for us to, to wrap up this edition of the uh, the Hub's regular Friday roundtable. And again, Sean, do you got a, a little birthday party planned? Is someone fetting you somewhere, or is it <laughs> is this just part of the new austerity regime in the in the Spear household to? forgo uh, a lavish birthday party well, for your I, 40th. I've been looking in my Bitcoin wallet and neither of you have sent me a, a, a Bitcoin present. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I figure it out, I'll get out right on that. <laughs> okay, well, ha happy birthday, Sean. And uh, we'll do this all again next Friday. Have a great weekend, guys. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues. For subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.